Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the signs and speeches of Jesus and the spite that surrounded them. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say hi to a couple of people. I know that sounds a bit strange, but as we move into the new year, I think it is the perfect time to greet a few of our listeners specifically. I've mentioned before that I think it is really awesome that my sermons get listened to around the world. We are not a big church, and it just amazes me how many countries my preaching reaches through this podcast. That said, it seems that most of the time my sermons get listened to outside of the United States are one-offs. People find one of them through a search or whatever, and they listen. However, we've noticed that there are a few places where people are listening to our sermons almost every week, and I want to acknowledge those people. So to you who are listening in Madrid, Paris, Dublin, Brussels, and Frankfurt, hi. I appreciate you listening. I've prayed for you. And honestly, I think it would be really cool to connect with you. If you ever want to say hi back, send me an email at chad at creekside.me or send me a message on Instagram. My username is Chad A. Harms. And in the meantime, know that it's a huge blessing for me and for our church to know that you are listening. To everyone else, Happy New Year. I hope 2022 will be an amazing year for you, a year where you see the movement of God in your life in a mighty way. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. My name is Chad, if I didn't say that earlier. I'm getting points in my jacket, which is the intent. Uh, The Cowboys are playing right now. There's about four minutes left in the game. I'm a big-time Cowboys fan. Kevin is also, and so is my uncle over here. Kevin's running the soundboard. He's going to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down in the middle of this sermon. So if I break down crying, it's probably not because of the Bible. But I'm not wearing this jacket, you know, for good luck or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm actually wearing it because I... Maybe I just made an excuse to put this into my sermon, but I found that the Cowboys are, 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 are this team that really divides people, and I will bring this back around, I promise. But like, uh, I, you know, I think the Lakers and the Yankees are a little bit this way in other sports, but I'm not a fan. I hate those teams, but, but I, I've loved the Cowboys since I was born, and you just find that, that the Cowboys, when you tell people you're a fan, it creates a reaction. And, and the, the time that I saw this most clearly is uh, I used to, my job at this church used to be, uh, I ran a homeless ministry for about two years. And there was this guy that, that started showing up and he was like bringing, like we were bringing our food. We've been at it for over a year. And then this other guy starts showing up and honestly, it kind of felt like he was like bringing stolen goods. There was like a real shadiness. And he may have thought the exact same thing about us. We're not sure. But we were told that he didn't like us at all because we were Christians and he didn't trust any Christian. And he just thought we were bad. And, and one day I showed up and I don't know if it was this coat or not, but I had something Dallas Cowboys on. And the guy who has despised us, refused to speak to us. He's mad that we're there. He thinks we're trying to take advantage of these poor people without homes. He looks at me and he goes, you're a Cowboys fan? I said, yeah. And then he hugged me. <laughs> like he actually embraced me. I was like, what is going, like all the walls, all of like, the- he's here to, you know, hurt people. Like it didn't matter anymore because I was a Cowboy fan. I'm going to take it off now. Uh, and here's the deal that we're going to see today. Jesus is like that. 
And sometimes because we, we, we don't tell the whole truth about him in church, sometimes because we, we, we only talk about the easy parts of the life of Jesus and the things he said, we can, we can really forget how divisive Jesus is to the point where it should break down all barriers between us and we should just embrace if, we, uh, if we're both Jesus people. And, and at the same time, we should not be surprised by those who hate Jesus or those of us who are on his side. I was reminded uh, of this scene from this, the passage we're going to look at, which, by the way, is three whole chapters. So I hope you don't have any plans tonight. But, um, uh, but uh, we'll move quickly. But, but, but in this, this story that we're going to look at, these three chapters that we're going to look at, it's so much like that scene. Do you remember the movie Hook? Uh, and, and there's the, the red and black haired guy in the movie Hook, Robin Williams, Peter Pan, but he's old now and middle age anyway. And he goes back and, and he, he's in Neverland. And, and I think the guy's name is Rufio. Is that right? The red and black hair. I'm getting some head nods. And there, there's conflict because uh, Rufio's taken over as like, you know, the head honcho in the, in the, with the Lost Boys. And then, and then there's this kind of defining moment where he, he draws the line in the sand. He says, you're either on my side or the other side. And on all these kids, right, they're, they like are hearing this debate between Rufio and, and Peter Pan, who doesn't even really know that he's Peter Pan at that point, or he just come to that realization. And, and they're, they, whenever they hear something, they're running back and forth. Do you remember this scene? They're like going over the line, going back and forth because of the side they're picking. And, and for three chapters in the book of John, John 7, 8, and 9, that's what it feels like. It feels like the, the people like are hearing these lines drawn by Jesus. Like, hey, you're either over here with me or you're not. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what to do with this. Because they see so clearly how divisive the words that Jesus are saying truly are. And we're going to look at a bunch of those today. Now, I'm not going to read, uh, I jokes aside, I'm not going to read you three chapters of the Bible. None of us want me to do that. Um, but I'm going to look at the moments in those chapters where we see Jesus say something and immediately it evokes a response. People are like, yeah, this might be the Messiah. Or they're like, get him because they see it so negatively. And those are the main things that we're going to look at. Now, at the beginning of John 7, Jesus' brothers are, are trying to get him to go to the festival, which, by the way, might be the festival of Sukkot, something that we celebrate here at this church, or the festival of tabernacles. And in John 7, 1, we, we kind of see why Jesus isn't just going up. It says, he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. It's a pretty good reason to not want to go up. And, uh, and so we're going to look at what happens when Jesus goes, because Jesus does decide to go after his brothers leave. And then we read in John 7, 12, and 13, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so you see the three groups here, right? Like we've been talking about this dividing line really and how divisive Jesus can be. We're talking about these signs and these speeches that, that really produce spite or they produce a following. But here it seems like there's, there's kind of these three groups. There's some who are saying he's a good guy. 
which clearly doesn't go far enough, given all that we've seen in the book of John. There's others who are saying, well, he's a deceptive man. And then you have these religious leaders who absolutely want to kill Jesus. They want to kill him. Now, we're going to see more of that as we move forward. But I just want to uh, tell you, D.A. Carson, I've been relying on his commentary. It's very big commentary, very good commentary on this book of the Bible, John. And, and he actually gives the section title for this is Radical Confrontation, Climactic Signs, Works, and Words. It is a, there is radical confrontation in, in this section. And, and one of the things that I love that, that has been so clear to me so far as I've worked my way through the book of John is how good it can be to just, just go through a book of the Bible, but also how good it can be to read it quickly because you start to see things that you never would have seen before. And the book of John is breaking down so clearly as we move through it. And here there is this, this giant section where people hear the words of Jesus, they see his works, and man, they're either on board or they're terribly offended. So Jesus goes down to the festival and about halfway through, he starts preaching. And this is what we read in John 7, 15 and 16 and 19 through 20. By the way, read the rest on your own. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Listen to what they say. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus is called demon-possessed. I'd call it three and a half times in these three chapters. One is kind of a slant demon-possessed statement by the crowds. But he's called demon-possessed three and a half times here. Interestingly, it's the only time the word demon comes up in the entirety of the book of John. It's aimed towards Jesus by the people. I think what they're saying here is we think you're both evil and crazy. You're evil and crazy. That's what they're saying to Jesus. And I'm not sure there's any better statement to illustrate what I've been trying to communicate as we've moved our way through this series about how divisive Jesus' words were and are for us today. Uh, Upon hearing what Jesus has to say, The response consistently in this section is that this man must be demon-possessed. He must be crazy and evil. That's a really strong response, right? And when we teach Jesus in such a way or respond to Jesus in such a way where we go, yeah, he seems like a pretty good guy, we are completely missing what John is writing in these four or five chapters of this this document that he wrote about this friend that he had named Jesus. Because the response is not neutered. It's not middle. It's either we will follow you into our deaths if we have to, or you are demon possessed. You're demon possessed. Now here it's like, why? It's simply because he says people want to kill him, which by the way is true, but uh, they don't know about it. But the reasons grow as we move through this section. Listen to John 7, 28 through 32. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. 
But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. I didn't read part in, in there that's pretty ironic where the, where the crowds are actually saying, wait, the Pharisees refused to arrest him. They're not responding to him. So maybe it means they believe he's the Messiah, which they absolutely do not. They're trying to kill him. But here you see three groups, right? I mean, you see people trying to seize him. You see many believing in him. And then you see people who want to arrest him because of what he has said. And what has he said? He said really two things. And I think, man alive, these things still should be controversial from the mouth of Jesus to this day. He says, first, that the people don't know God. And he says, second, that he was sent by God. Now, these, these are really big, big, big statements, right? I mean, we've already seen that Jesus is an eternal being who is with God and was God before the creation of the world, that he is the uncreated creator of all that has been created. He has always existed in perfect unity with the Father. And so when he claims to be from God, it makes total sense. But the people liked it when they were looking at him and going, that's a good man. But when he says that I've been sent by God, all of a sudden there's this, this crazy reaction to him. I mean, either you believe in him or you want to seize him or you try to arrest him because he's saying, look, I'm an eternal being. I've come from the father. I was not just born at Christmas. I've always existed. God has literally sent me to earth to do something important. Now, if you just think that Jesus is a good guy who did a few nice things, then that claim should compel you to, the, uh, compel you to believe he wasn't a good guy, you know, that, that he was crazy saying he came from God. How'd you like it if I showed up and was like, God sent me to you, right? Like even that, just that, it bothered me. Like me saying it just now. It's like, come on, dude. Like, who do you think you are? And that's what Jesus is saying here. But not only that, he's saying that these people don't know God. I thought about that this week. Think everybody, people who never think about God, people who are agnostic, who claim to not know whether there's a God or not, they still think they're pretty okay right with God, don't they? Like when, when stuff starts happening, stuff starts going badly, they bow down and they pray and they expect that the creator of the universe is paying attention to them and is taking care of them and he's on their side. But Jesus doesn't allow for that here. He's looking at this crowd that has refused to follow him, that has refused to embrace him as who he really is, not just a good man, but the Messiah and the Son of God. And he's looking at them and saying, you don't know God. You don't know God. And God is, is not your father at this point. I'll tell him that later. Now, look, that's controversial, right? And when I read through the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus, it's just clear. I need to say this to you. If you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, if you haven't come to a belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that means the Savior of people, that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that if you haven't come to a belief in Jesus, then you are not good with God no matter how well you have lived. You are not in God's family. That's what Jesus is saying to these people, and they recognize it, and they do not like it. He goes on in verses 34 through 35. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? We go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. Now, Jesus here refers to his impending death. And, and it's interesting because here it's not so much spite, it's just confusion. They're like, what's he, what's he talking about? And it's the same confusion that comes up in the disciples pretty consistently whenever Jesus talks about his death. And I would just call you back to what I said last week, that, that man, these people were looking for the Jesus they wanted. And a lot of times they chose not to follow Jesus because he didn't fit into their box. And one of the key, key ideas that did not fit into their box and really didn't fit into his 12 disciples box was that he came to die. Jesus came to die for our sins. And you must believe that if you're going to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. But then, then Jesus says this, this incredibly large thing. Uh, this is like the real Sukkot statement, the celebration, the festival of tabernacles that we celebrate out on our church property every year. This is what he's saying, or this is what he says. On the last day and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, it goes on to say that Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. If you were with us for our celebration of Sukkot, then you may remember, I hope you remember, uh, that in these words and in Sukkot in general, it is a great reminder that God is both present with his people and providing for his people. And so Jesus' claim here is so simple but so big. He is saying that if you invite me into your life, then you will always have the presence and the provision of God in your life. Whoa, like that's a big deal. That's not just like, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, he's saying, if you follow me, then you will always have God's provision and God's presence. Wow. I mean, could you make a bigger statement than that? And here's the deal. These people, like, I mean, they have to be looking at this and, and just saying like, like, what is going on? on here. But what I'd point out, and I think this is so important, is that this is not inherently dislikable, right? Because, because that's a good thing. Like I want God's presence in my life and I want God to provide for me. I want those things. And so it's not that Jesus says something inherently bad here. It's that he says something so big about himself. That's what bothers the people. Listen to verses 40 through 44. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David had lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The people recognize in the grandiose nature of this statement that he either has to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the Jewish people, who, by the way, came not only to save the Jewish people, but to save all who would come to believe in him. He has to be that, or he has to be something we need to seize, arrest, try, and maybe even kill. Because nobody can just come along and say, I am the source of God's presence and provision for your life eternally if you'll choose to accept me. Jesus is no mere good man. 
I mean, we either, again, as C.S. Lewis so very famously said, we either look at him as Lord, lunatic, or liar. He was either the Lord of all who came to save us, he was, or he was a crazy guy, or he was a very terrible liar. He was demon-possessed, to use their phrase. Either he was Lord and Savior, or he was demon-possessed. These people who encountered Jesus in the first century, they recognized it. But we sometimes just look at the good parts of Jesus, the things that we like, and we allow for ourselves and others to not understand how polarizing his words are. You're either all in and he's your savior, or man, you should be all out because this guy was crazy. <laughs> it, it gets bigger because here's what he says in John 8, 51 through 53. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Will never see death. At this, they exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet to say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death, and yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, as I mentioned that, that Jesus is forcing us to make a decision, you probably could guess that I think the only good decision is to be his follower. And, and as I've said throughout, I mean, remember who's writing these words and he's writing in support of the claims that Jesus made. It's the guy who hung out with him for three years, was with him, saw everything he did, was there for every miracle, was there for every teaching, was there for all of it. And he is trying to convince you that you should follow Jesus. And the reason is exactly what Jesus has said here. Whoever obeys his word will never see death. Whoever comes to believe in him, whoever chooses to follow him will never see death. Death. Now, we've talked about eternal life in this series. Eternal life is a big deal in the book of John. It's this thing that, that will exist for eternity, but it begins now. It's a new and better life in Christ. We are forgiven from sin and where we have peace and joy. And we're, not only are we forgiven for sin, but we can break free from sin and we can have a relationship with God. We can trust that our prayers are heard and answered every single day time and we can know that they're answered for whatever is in our best interest. This is a this is a better life and a life that will last for eternity. But man, I think as we are you know so focused on death the last two years, like eternal life is this wonder wonderful theological rich term. But I can almost feel more this idea that I will never see death. I'll never see death. Talked about this before in sermons, but my goodness, I mean, we lived with a, a literal death count being put on the side of our TVs or our browsers for, you know, a year. I don't think we're paying attention to those things as much anymore, but, but, but like literally, I mean, just there, click, 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 you know, it's like, an, it's like uh, horrible. It's just a horrible way to live, right? Thinking about death all the time. I also just saw this quote the other day I liked, and, and it just said, I don't have any answers. And then it said, nobody gets out alive. And that's such a reality that we all live with, right? Like none of us are getting out alive. Like we all believe that whether, you know, we're, we're going to breathe our last breath unless Jesus comes back. That's just part of it. Somebody very special to us died just a couple of weeks ago. My son's preschool teacher was also my daughter's preschool teacher, somebody that's so important to the school that we are 
sending our kids to that I uh, spend probably too much time volunteering with that I've invested in lives in that school. And, and this woman, you know, she took care of my kids. Preschool teacher's a big deal. Sets them up and, and she died. And here is Jesus saying that she never saw death. I mean, the claim that he's making is that when we breathe our last breath here, we will take our first breath in heaven. An incredible claim, and a claim that I hold to, and a claim that is worth becoming a Christian over. I mean, it's definitely a claim worth exploring whether or not you should become a Christian over. I mean, death is all around us. We talk about it all the time now. And Jesus is looking at this crowd saying, if you follow me, you don't ever have to see it personally. And you'll see other people die. You'll know about death, but you won't ever have to see it. I hope that every one of you will consider becoming a Christian, you know, for nothing else than because of this, this idea that you never want to see death. I don't want to see it. I know you don't want to see it. And I believe Jesus is the only way for that to be a reality. I was going to say all that, and I believe it. The crowd who didn't, they know what an incredible claim this is. Because they cry out, you heard me say it with some emphasis, now we know you're demon-possessed. I mean, like, if it wasn't enough that you thought people were trying to kill you, which Jesus was right about, such a weird thing they were wrong on. But if we didn't know it from that, we definitely know it now. Because you are claiming to be the source of forever life. I would look at all of you and myself, and, and I would say, be sure to choose wisely when it comes to Jesus. And be sure to consider intently whether these claims are true or not. Because it is a life and death matter, and not just life and death here on earth, but life and death for eternity. You need to choose wisely and you need to consider intently whether or not Jesus is right when he says these things. He makes another big claim in John 8, 56 and 57. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. It's one of those claims to be eternal, right? And I'll skip past that one pretty quick, but not a small claim, right? Like, hey, I've been around since that guy that lived a couple thousand years ago. Like, either you think this guy's crazy or you need to embrace him as your savior. But then the biggest one, I mean, this is the one they can't stand. Like, they're, they're done with him at this point. John 8, 58 and 59 is a famous couple of verses. Very truly, I say to you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. In the Old Testament, there's this story where there's this flaming bush, and this guy Moses comes up to it. It's clearly uh, God, and he looks at the bush, and he says, who are you? And God names himself. God gives Moses a name, and what do you think that name is? It's I am. And so when Jesus looks at these people here, and he says, I am. They all know. He just gave himself the name of God. He is claiming to be God in human flesh. Now, what's funny is that 2,000 years later, 
I've seen arguments against this. I've seen people say Jesus wasn't saying that. But it's so funny because, because the people that are sitting there, they absolutely have no doubt. Like literally they pick up rocks to kill him. Now blasphemy in the Old Testament law was punishable by death, but you had to go through like a trial and, you know, be convicted and kind of the, some of the normal stuff that we do here in America. But they've heard enough. This guy is claiming to be God and they just grab the closest rock and they're going to start hurling it at him to kill him. Because they've cl- he's claimed, he's now claimed to be God. Claimed to be God. Anybody who tells you that Jesus was a nice hippie guy that walked around and did some good things for the world, they're missing the most major claims of all. Uh, they're missing perhaps the most major claim at all that Jesus said to the people that he is God. He is God. Then in John 9, 1 through 34, we have uh, Jesus healing a man that was on the Sabbath. And of course, that ticks the people off. But then uh, in John 9, 39 and 40, we read this. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Leon Morris says about this, another guy that wrote a commentary. His coming represents a judgment for people to divide according to the way they react to that coming. I mean, at the heart of this is that all people apart from Christ are spiritually blind. They don't know what is good for their souls, what is bad for their souls. They don't feel right and wrong in the way that they should. And it's coming to a a recognition, that's a word, a recognition of that truth that we are blind that will lead us to see because we will embrace Jesus. And in fact, Jesus answered the Pharisees' question, like, are we blind too? He's like, no, you know a lot. And that's the very reason that you're choosing not to accept me and how bad, that's the very reason that it's so bad you're choosing not to accept me. But for us, I mean, what a divisive statement. He's saying, apart from him, you don't see the world the way that you should see the world. You don't see right and wrong the way that you should see right and wrong. You don't know what is good for you and what is bad for you. Walk up to somebody on the street and tell them that, right? They're going to say, you're a jerk. You're an idiot. How dare you question? What's right for me is right for me. I know exactly what is best. In some ways, people declare every day in our country now, I am my own God. And Jesus says, you're absolutely blind apart from me. Ticks the people off. There's just one more thing for me to read. Jesus then goes on in chapter 10 to talk about how he is the good shepherd and how he can lay down his life for his sheep and take it up again. And, and man, I'll just point out ahead of time that that's one of those things that we love as Christians. That's one of those things that pastors look forward to preaching on. That's one of those things, as I said last week, that we hang on our walls. At least our grandparents hung on their walls, right? Like that's one of those things we like talking about as Christians, But listen to how that section ends, because it's still divisive for the people. Verses 18 through 21 in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were divided again. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I mean, Jesus claims to be the good shepherd. 
And the people in response to that say he's demon-possessed and, we're going to add to it, raving mad. So what is it that causes so much spite here? What is it that causes division? Now, we don't know exactly, but I think it's the fact that he says he can lay down his own life and take it up again. We obviously know that he's referencing the fact that he is going to allow for himself to be brutally tortured and killed for the sins of humanity, and then he will come back to life. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. And I would say to all of you that everything that I've said today, all of this divisiveness, it only really matters because at the end of his life, Jesus willingly lays down his life for all who will choose to follow him. He willingly gives his life so that you may believe in him and then have eternal life, the eternal life that I've already talked about. And after he dies, he comes back to life, conquering sin and death for all who would become his followers. It's encouraging. It's exciting for me as a Christian. And what strikes me in this is that something as a Christian I can find so comforting, these people can find so evil. They completely miss, they completely miss all of the blessings that could come from these words, that my Jesus is my shepherd who guides me and takes care of me. And you know, the old picture with him carrying the lamb, like who carries me when things are too hard, like who fights off the evil that seeks to attack me and take over my life. Like, I mean, that is hopeful and comforting. But to people who choose to reject Jesus, It's absolutely nonsense. It's the words of a raving mad lunatic who is demon-possessed. I mean, Jesus in this section, and I know I covered a lot and I covered it quickly, but I wanted to see, you know, here's here's his lines. And the people are like, oh, what side are we going to be on? Because they know how incredibly divisive these words are. And my fear is today we don't. And so we allow people to kind of toe the line, say, oh, I like Jesus, seems like a good guy. I'll stay right here in the middle. I'm never going to commit too much of myself to him. I'm never going to really worship him. I'm not going to do the church thing. I'm just going to kind of hang out here in the middle, tell you he's a good guy, pray when I'm sad or upset, read the Bible when I feel like it, but not be all in or all out because I don't want to be uncool, but I also don't want to make that Jesus guy mad. And Jesus says, I mean, people want to kill me. He is from God. Apart from him, you don't know God. He's going to die. Belief in him leads to God's permanent presence and provision in your life. If you follow him, you'll never see death. He lived thousands of years before he walked the earth. He is God. Apart from him, you are spiritually blind and he is the good shepherd. If you're not a Christian, you should consider this intently and choose very wisely about whether or not This is true. And I would offer again that it's being said, it's being written down by a man who hung out with him. Do you know any person that walks this earth today whose friends would say these things about him, who would write a document about him to defend these types of claims by him? No, you don't. And so consider intently and choose wisely what you do with Jesus because eternity hangs in the balance. But if you are a Christian and you've come to believe these things, then you too should consider intently how incredible they are. We have a tendency to make Jesus so much smaller than he is. 
And when we do, we don't worship him fully. And we don't, we don't share him freely. We don't serve him, you know, wholly. I think that if we will, if we will consider intently the hard claims of Jesus that sometimes we don't want our friends to know about because they're so offensive, then it will compel us to worship him more fervently, share him more freely, and serve him more fully. I mean, there's these lines in the sand. And I would ask you today to consider what side you are on. And if you are on the side of Jesus, then worship. I mean, make it your life. And if you're not, if you're over here, I've shown you where the line is. And now you got to think about whether or not he's worth following. And I submit to you today, I ask you today to choose to follow him because I don't want you to ever see death. Let me pray that you'll do those things. Lord Jesus, you know, we, and I do it too, Lord, we want to talk about your love and we want to talk about your kindness and your goodness and, uh, and, and just, we want to, you know, share the, the nice Bible verses, God, that, that make people feel good. But in so many ways, I think, God, we then allow people to take middle ground when it comes to you. And I think, God, even in our souls, those of us who are Christians in our souls, Lord, we kind of take a middle ground stance. We, we think about you while we're at church and, like I said, pray when things get hard, but forget about you the rest of the time. And, and so I pray, God, as, as we are confronted this morning with these you know, three whole chapters of Scripture that seem to make the point that you said things that just we cannot have a wishy-washy response to. I pray, God, that we would consider them deeply and intently. And God, I pray that people would choose to follow you, Jesus. They would, they would give their lives to you, that they would obey you, that they would come to know you as their Savior, that they would truly believe that you died for their sins and you came back to life. Not because I preached a good sermon, Jesus, but because your Holy Spirit is convicting them and compelling them to enter into a relationship with you, Lord. And I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would worship you for all that you are and all that you said you were as you walked on this earth and confronted the crowds. I pray these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.